Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace theology segment. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we have a great question. And the question is, what do we mean when we speak of the sanctity of human life? In biblical terms, the sanctity of human life is rooted and grounded in the creation. Mankind is, is, is not viewed as a cosmic accident, but as the product of a carefully executed creation by an eternal God. Human dignity, we must say, is derived by God. Man, as a finite, dependent, contingent creature, is, a, is assigned a high value by his creator. The, the creation account in Genesis provides the framework for human dignity in Genesis 1, 26-27, which says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Creation in the image of God is what sets humans apart from all other uh, creatures. The stamp of the image of God and the likeness of God connects God and mankind uniquely. And though there is no biblical warrant for seeing man as godlike, there is a high dignity associated with this unique relationship to the Creator. Man may no longer be pure, but he is still human. And so far as we are still human, we retain the image of God in a wider sense. We are still valuable creatures. We may no longer be worthy, but we still have worth. We have dignity. We have value. This is the resounding biblical message of redemption. The, the creatures God created are the same creatures he has moved to redeem. Many Old Testament statements speak of the dignity of human life as it rests in divine creation, including the following in Job 33:4, which says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Psalm 100, verse 3, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Isaiah 45, 9-12 says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does a clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you beginning? Or to a woman, with whom are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed us, Ask of me to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Now, Jesus Christ gave the most important explanation of the Old Testament view of the sanctity of life when he said in Matthew 5, 21 through 22, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, the words of Jesus have have vital significance for our understanding of the sanctity of life. Here, Jesus brought in the implications of the Old Testament law. He was speaking to religious leaders who had a narrow and even a simplistic grasp of the Ten Commandments. 
the legalists of his day were confident that if they obeyed the explicitly stated aspects of the law, they could applaud themselves for their great virtue. They failed, however, to grasp the wider implications. In Jesus' view, what the law did not spell out in detail was clearly implied by its broader meaning. And so this quality of the law is seen in Jesus' expansion of the prohibition against adultery in Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And now Jesus is explaining that a person who refrains from the physical act of adultery has not necessarily been obedient to the whole law. The law on adultery is a complex one, including not only illicit intercourse, but everything that falls between lust and adultery. Jesus is describing lust as adultery of the heart. And now the law not only prohibits certain negative behaviors and attitudes, but by implication, it requires certain positive behaviors and attitudes. That is, if adultery is prohibited, chastity and purity are required. And so when we apply these patterns set forth by Jesus to the prohibition against murder, we understand clearly that on the one hand, we are to refrain from all the things contained in the broad definition of murder. But on the other hand, we are positively commanded to work to save, to improve, to care for life. We are to avoid murder in all the ramifications and at the same time, do all that we can to promote life. And just as Jesus considered lust a part of adultery, so he viewed unjustifiable anger and slander as part of murder. As lust is adultery of the heart, so anger and slander are murder of the heart. And by expanding the scope of the Ten Commandments to include such matters as lust and slander, Jesus isn't meaning that it is just as evil to lust after a person as it is to have unlawful physical intercourse. Likewise, Jesus did not say that slander is just as evil as murder. What he did say is that the law against murder includes a law against anything that involves injuring a fellow human unjustly. And so how does all of this apply to the abortion issue? Well, in Jesus' teaching, we see another strong reinforcement of the sanctity of human life. Murder of the heart, such as slander, may be described as potential murder. It is potential murder because, as an example, anger and slander have the potential to lead to the full act of physical murder. Of course, they do not always lead to that outcome. Anger and slander are prohibited, not so much because of what else they may lead to, but because of the actual harm they do to the quality of life. And when we link the discussion of sanctity of life to abortion, we make a subtle but relevant connection. Even even if it cannot be proved that a fetus is an actual living human person, which we can, uh, there is still no doubt that, that it is a potential human person. In other words, a fetus is a developing person. It is not stuck in a frozen state of, of potentiality. The fetus is in a dynamic process. Without interference or unforeseen calamity, it will surely become a fully actualized living human person. Now, what Jesus Christ sees the law against murder as including not only the act of actual murder, but also the actions of potential murder. Jesus is teaching that it is unlawful to commit potential murder of an actual life. And so what then are the implications of committing the actual destruction of human life? Well, the actual destruction of potential life is not the same thing as the potential destruction of actual life. 
These are not identical cases, but they are close enough to make us pause to carefully consider the possible consequences before we can destroy a potential life. And if this aspect of the law does not fully and finally capture abortion within the broad and even the complex prohibition against murder, a second aspect clearly does. That is to say, the negative prohibitions of the law imply positive attitudes and actions. For instance, the biblical law against adultery also requires chastity and purity. And so when a law is stated in a positive form, its negative opposite is implicitly forbidden. If, if God commands us to be good stewards of our money, we ought not to be wild spenders. A, a positive command to diligent labor, it carries an implicit negative prohibition against being lazy on the job. A negative prohibition against actual and potential murder involves a positive mandate to work for the protection and the substance of life. So to oppose murder is to promote life. To whatever else abortion is, it does not promote the life of the unborn child. Now, although some people are going to argue that abortion promotes the quality of life of those who do not desire offspring, it does not promote the life of the subject in question, the developing unborn child. The, the scripture is consistently strong in the support for the exceeding great value of human life. The poor, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the handicapped are all valued in the word of God. And so any discussion of the abortion issue must ultimately wrestle with this key theme of Scripture. And when the destruction or the disposal of even potential human life is done cheaply and easily, a shadow darkens the whole landscape of the sanctity of life and human dignity. Now, the phrase sanctity of your life, it reflects a belief that because people are made in God's image, as we looked at from Genesis 1, 26 and 27, human life has inherited sacred attribute that should be protected and respected at all times. And while God gave humanity the authority to kill and to eat other forms of life in Genesis 9, 3, the murdering of other human beings is forbidden in the word of God, with the penalty being death in Genesis 9, 6. Humanity was created in the image of God, but sin has corrupted that image. There is nothing inherently sacred in fallen man. And so the sanctity of human life is not due to the fact that we're such wonderful and good beings. The only reason that sanctity of life applies to humanity is the fact that God created us in his image and he set us apart from all other forms of life. And although that image has indeed been marred by sin, his image is still present in humanity. We are like God, and that likeness means that human life is always to be treated with dignity and respect. And so the sanctity of life, it means that humanity is more sacred than the rest of creation. Human life is only holy in the sense of being set apart from all the life created by God. Many apply the sanctity of life to issues like abortion and euthanasia. And while it definitely applies to those issues, it applies even much more to the whole issue. The sanctity of life should motivate us to combat all forms of evil and all injustice that are, are per perpetuated against human life. So violence, abuse, oppression, human trafficking, and many other evils are also violations of the sanctity of life. And beyond the sanctity of life, there is a much better argument against these things, the great commandment. 
In fact, in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, Jesus himself says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In these commandments, we see that our actions are to be motivated by love for God and love for others. And so if we love God, we will value our own lives as part of the plan of God. That is to do his will until it comes about that his will is better served by our death. And we will love and care for people. We, we will see to the needs of the elderly and the sick. We will protect others from harm, whether from abortion, euthanasia, human trafficking, or other abuses. And while the sanctity of life uh, can be the foundation, love for God and our neighbor must be the motivation. Now, the angel Gabriel told Mary that she would bear a son and that this would come about by the power of the Holy Spirit in Luke one thirty-five, which says, And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then Elizabeth called Mary the mother of the Lord in Luke one forty-three. Soon after, Mary became pregnant. These verses are significant because they mean that the incarnation of Christ did not begin when he was a newborn baby, a small child, a teenager, or even an adult man. Rather, the divine nature of God the Son was joined to the human nature of Jesus from the moment of his conception in Mary's womb. From that point on, Jesus Christ was a divine human person, both God and man. This is significant for the discussion of abortion because it means that Christ was a genuine human person long before his birth as a baby on the first Christmas. The Jews believed that an abortion of a preborn child and exposure of a child born are both murderous sins. That is because God created life and breathed life into Adam. Genesis 2 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so God created man and woman for the purpose of procreation. Genesis 2 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Scripture makes it clear that the killing of a person created in the image of God is murder. Exodus 20.13 says, You shall not murder. The word murder here is translated is the translated word ratash. According to Strong's, it literally means to murder, to slay, to kill, premeditated, accidental, as avenger, slayer, intentional, and to assassinate. The didact, an ancient manual for church instruction, said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not procure abortion, nor commit infanticide. And there is a difference between a child in a mother's womb and one outside of it. And yet, the early church saw both as equally living people and taking life as murderous. Charles H. Scobie said, Scripture uses the Greek word brephos for Elizabeth's unborn child in Luke one forty one and Luke one forty four. Unborn Jesus in Mary's womb in Luke 2.12 and also for children brought to Jesus in Luke 18.15. That is to say, God in his word reveals that a child in the womb and a child singing and dancing around in the womb are equally human beings who bear the image of God. Abortion is sinful because it is the killing of an unborn child created in the image and likeness of God. Now, we need to be clear today as the church. We need to explain to fathers and mothers in the church about the importance of life. 
Now, women contemplating an abortion, they do so for a variety of reasons, uh, financial, emotional, and yet God has something to say about this. The Lord is the great provider who provides for those who trust in him. So aborting a child because you can't afford to care for a child isn't a valid reason. Having an abortion for emotional reasons because you think you won't be able to survive emotionally or financially is not a valid reason. If you are emotionally strong enough to have intercourse, then you are responsible for the bearing and and the raising of your child instead of murdering the innocent one. And and it, it's the last issue, the emotional one, which is the most complex. Uh, people's emotions are fickle. One, one person might feel good about themselves one day, and the next day they might be down in the dumps. And so when I call those contemplating having an abortion to be responsible, I'm not dismissing how they feel. I, I'm simply trying to get you to understand the seriousness of your choice. The child that is in your womb, mothers, is a precious gift from God. The child in your room has God-given talents, abilities, and gifts that God has uniquely given to your baby to bless the world. And, and God desires for your baby to come to a saving knowledge of himself. Uh, God has a plan to use your baby in his world to draw people to the Lord Jesus and use them powerfully for his honor and glory. And yet we must say, as we wrap up this episode, that babies are killed every day. Some 60 million children in the United States, according to some statistics, have been killed. That is more than everyone who was killed in World War II combined. In the case of abortion, the death counter hasn't even stopped because of war. Instead, the war on babies it continues by killing them in favor of a woman's right to choose. When women choose to have an abortion, what they're doing is earnestly believing that they are making a choice between what is best for them. And yet what they fail to understand is what is best for their, their family, which extends to the baby inside, is to bring that child to full term. In addition to this, they fail to keep in mind the benefits of their child upon society. And since every child is unique, every child can make a difference for the kingdom of God. So the choice to not have a child that, that you've conceived is morally and ethically wrong. The child in the womb is a child created in the image of God. It is a living, it's a breathing human being worthy of the parents and society's respect. Sadly, American liberal media today and those holding to a liberal political philosophy, they want Americans to support their worldview. At the heart of this political liberal thought is the idea that everybody has a choice to do with their life as they see fit. And yet from this vantage point, everyone is right in their own eyes, and so they can make whatever choice they want. This means uh, somebody can choose to have an abortion with no moral or ethical choices, uh, consequences. After all, they just decided what's right for them. And yet, using that same logic, why do these political liberals even believe in having prisons? Why, why lock up those who commit crimes if people have a choice to have an abortion? In a moral philosophy class at a secular school in Western Washington, I was taught that you could if you could use an extreme example to disprove an argument, then you could disprove the pro-life position. And yet, by their own admission, those adhering to a liberal political philosophy have to admit that the pro-choice viewpoint fails at a fundamental level to deal with the reality of life. People have intercourse for a reason to enjoy the pleasure of it. By excusing the role of responsibility in intercourse, that is child and parenthood, we're setting a dangerous precedent for our society. And at worst, we're destroying the traditional family, which at the heart has a man and a woman and a child in it. And it gets even more interesting as those adhering to a political liberal philosophy are those who have kids while telling others that, that, that they have the right to choose to get rid of that, their kid. The lack of logic and outright hypocrisy on this viewpoint is telling. 
And on the other hand, they teach others to do away with life while, while they have kids and families of their own. At the heart of this discussion on abortion and life is the Word of God. The Word of God is not a manual of opinions or a book of fairy tales. It is the truth. It tells us about life for this very reason. It instructs us so that we will know what God has said. Our response to what God has said must be obedience to the Word of God. And at the heart of our discussion on abortion and how to respond and even minister to people who've had an abortion or are considering having one is to understand that these people, just like us, are made in the image and likeness of God. Thus, they are worthy of dignity and value and respect. And so whether you're uh, politically liberal or politically conservative or somewhere in between, you need the gospel. You need to see that life is not an option. It is special. It is created in the image of God. And it is worthy of dignity, value, and respect. And, and if you've had an abortion today, I just want to say this. You're not beyond the gospel. Yes, you've sinned and you've killed an innocent child created in the image and likeness of God. Yes, you've done what is wrong in the sight of God. You need to understand that you deserve to be punished, but God has intervened on your behalf. Jesus was born in a manger as a God-man. He lived a sinless life for you and me. He was beaten and he was scourged. He was tried as a criminal and convicted of crimes he never committed. He died the death of a criminal in the most gruesome style the world has ever known for your sins against God. Jesus died the death of crucifixion you deserved in your place in order to make possible your redemption and reconciliation with God. And so whether you've had an abortion or you committed any other sin, you are not beyond hope. If you've counseled somebody to have an abortion in the past, there is forgiveness in the cross of Christ for your sin against God. There is hope for you today in the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Christ didn't stay dead in the grave. They were not able to find his body anywhere because he was buried for three days and he rose again on the third day. Jesus is a victorious, triumphant, and exalted Savior and King. And so I want to encourage you as we end this episode today to examine your life. Do you truly support the cause of life? Do you stand on the side of life and liberty or do you stand on the side of choice? Today, you have a choice to make, a real choice. The choice you make today affects more than whether you're going to have an abortion or not. I believe that if you're born again by the Spirit of God, God will change your heart, which will change your choices about life. God promises to give you a new heart with new desires in the gospel. And, and when he does that, he'll take your heart of stone and he'll replace it with a new heart with new desires for himself. This is what Jesus desires for you today. He desires to make you a new creation in Christ by you repenting and believing in the person and work of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Won't you stop fighting against the God who loved you so much that he sent his son to die in your place and for your sin and be buried and rise again? Yes, you might disagree with me on whether life is special and important and whether you have a choice to choose. Unless God illuminates these truths that we've talked about today, you will not have eyes to see nor ears to hear what I'm talking about to you today in this episode. And so I'm praying for you that God will give you ears to hear and eyes to see all that you might come to know the precious gift of God in Jesus Christ. It is there that we must begin to talk about this issue because the Lord is the giver of life. He loves you so much that he gave up his life and his death, burial, and resurrection so that you could have eternal life. Won't you repent, believe, and put your hope and trust in Christ alone today? Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. 
Until next week, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.